from Diamond Light Source. This is the Diamond Podcast. Welcome to this July edition of the Diamond Light Source Podcast with me, Mira Senthi Lingam. This month, we've got a special edition brought to you from the Royal Society Summer Exhibition, which took place at London's South Bank Centre at the start of the month. We'll be finding out just what the Summer Science Exhibition is all about. It's for any member of the public to come in and directly interact with people who are doing some of the most cutting-edge and exciting science in the UK. So it's not like watching telly or going to a museum where it's mediated by a presenter or curator. You get to interact directly with the people who are doing the cutting-edge stuff. Peter Cockreave from the Royal Society will be explaining more about the aims of the exhibition later on. And speaking of the scientists doing cutting-edge stuff, we'll also be finding out about the science Diamond has been exhibiting there, including how bacteria in our stomachs could help design personalised diets. They can actually monitor the environment of your gut and tell what sugars that you've eaten and turn on the right enzymes to digest and use those sugars. But not everybody has the same bacteria in their gut. So by knowing how the different bacteria work and which bacteria are in your gut, we can predict how they will respond to different things that you eat. So all that insight, plus hydrogen cars, stressed out bacteria and science in extreme conditions, coming up in this July edition of the Diamond Light Source podcast. The Diamond Podcast. For more information, look us up online at diamond.ac.uk slash podcast. The Royal Society is the UK's National Academy of Science and each year they hold a summer exhibition showcasing some of the UK's most cutting-edge scientific research. This year, however, is slightly special as it's their 350th anniversary. So the exhibition has been turned into a bit of a festival and took place in London's South Bank Centre. I spoke to the Royal Society's Director of Public Relations, Peter Cotgreave, to find out more. Uh, well, the great thing about the Summer Science Exhibition is that it's for any member of the public to come in and directly interact with people who are doing some of the most cutting-edge and exciting science in the UK. So it's not like watching telly or going to a museum where it's mediated by a presenter or a curator. You get to interact directly with the people who are doing the cutting-edge stuff. And what's special about the fact that it's the Royal Society's one? Well, the Royal Society is all about excellence in science. So the exhibits here today have been chosen by a committee of the Royal Society really to represent a nice broad spread of what is really, really the cutting edge, what is really happening in British science that's exciting today. Now, the exhibition takes place every year, usually, at the Royal Society base, but this year it's special, it's at um, the Southbank Centre, so this is all in honour of the 350th anniversary. That's right, it's the 350th anniversary of the Royal Society, and we thought, rather than have the exhibition in the Society, as we always do, and we always get thousands of people coming, we'd bring it here to Southbank Centre, where tens of thousands of people would just bump into science. They would be here anyway. They don't think they want to go to a science exhibition, but when they come here, they love it. And we've had people coming back, actually, day after day, because they can't get through it all in one day. It's been absolutely fantastic. Actually, that's definitely something I've picked up on because I come here quite a lot, say, and people have just been in the cafe and then seen that something's going on and then come for a stumble. That's exactly right. Tens of thousands of people just come here for a meal or a drink or a meeting or or some other kind of event. Um, This week, they're bumping into science while they're here, learning about science and interacting with scientists. 
As well as the new location, what else is different or special about this year's exhibition? Uh, well, this year's exhibition is part of a wider festival, so we've got the exhibition here, it's bigger than it normally is, we'll get more people through, but also here in the Royal Festival Hall and the other South Bank Centre venues, we've got music concerts, uh, performances, uh, conferences, all sorts of things going on around the exhibition, so there's a whole ten day long festival of science and art. What would you say some of the highlights then have been, so the events as well as some of the highlighted stands? What has been a real highlight for me is that there have been very artistic performances, the first ever performance of 2001 A Space Odyssey with a live orchestra playing the music, that was at the beginning of the festival, mixed with conferences, so a conference for young people called Tomorrow's Giants about the future leaders in science, all of these things juxtaposed with one another so that everyone, whether they're a little kid or a scientist who's really into their field or a young scientist who wants to get really into their field can get something out of it. So that I think is what's been really the highlight of the whole festival for me. They are all trying to engage people so that they can get a flavour of what science is like and then maybe when they go away they might want to get more involved uh, if they're a, a child, they might want to get more involved in doing science. If they're an adult they might want to come to some more science events or read some science books or whatever. So yeah, that's, the, that's what we're hoping to achieve. Peter Cotgreave there, the Royal Society's Director of Public Relations, discussing the aims of this year's bigger exhibition. And as Peter mentioned, the exhibition showcases cutting-edge science in the UK, an area where Diamond plays a large role. From previous podcasts, we've learned about the great variety of science taking place at the Synchrotron. So which of these many areas of science were represented at their stand at the exhibition? Here's Laura Holland from Diamond's communications team. Well, on the Diamond stand we've got information about what we do, how the machine works, why we generate the light and we've also got people who use the light so we've got users from Newcastle, Warwick, Imperial, Edinburgh and Nottingham all talking about the science they do using diamonds so why they use it in their research and why it's important. Have there been any good um, demos as well that they're all using to explain a bit more about what they do? Yeah they've all brought some really amazing cool stuff actually. Edinburgh have got demos talking about pressure so they've got vacuum demos they've got marshmallows they've got a bed of nails for some reason the guys from imperial have had a really lovely model made showing the brain and the different areas they're looking at we've got model proteins we've got fluffy microbes we've got all sorts of things yeah is it true that at the weekend there's been a hydrogen car yes it is a real hydrogen powered car definitely yes they were um electrolyzing water and using the hydrogen made by that to power their little car along so they were showing that it is possible now but maybe not practical to carry. And how far um, did the car move much, or did it go very fast, or what was it like in action? Um, it was much like any remote control power car, so they were showing that it's a fuel source like any other. So it poodled around the floor and bumped into things, and yeah, it's a completely normal fuel source, so you can use it like any other, it's just storing it is the problem. So yeah, it was showing that it is a great fuel source, but maybe not a very practical one unless they can find better ways of storing it which is what they're trying to do at Diamond. Exactly, yes. So they're using um, what they call metallo-organic frameworks, so new chemical compounds that they're trying to make that will store hydrogen within its structure, um, and they can store it at much higher volumes than you can at room temperature and pressure without using a big, a big high-pressure vat. So there's a lot going on here. So they're looking into kind of brain activity for particular diseases and proteins, and as we've just discussed, um, hydrogen storage. So what's the reaction been like by visitors or from visitors? 
I think visitors have been really impressed that you can do so many things using a particle physics facility. I don't think people realise maybe that particle physics had so many applications in the wider world. Laura Holland from Diamond's communication team, giving us a taster of what Diamond had on offer at the exhibition. Did you know the Diamond Control System monitors around half a million variables from 6,000 individual devices? You're listening to the Diamond Light Source podcast. And this month, we're bringing you Diamond's highlights from the Royal Society's Summer Exhibition, which took place at London's Southbank Centre at the start of July. We've had an overview of the types of science showcased by Diamond, but now we move in a bit closer and onto a smaller scale. One scientist showcasing her work was Elizabeth Lowe from the University of Newcastle, who works with the friendly bacteria in our guts. So we look on sugar usage by gut bacteria, so the friendly gut bacteria that live in your gut all the time. And we look at how they can use the carbohydrates that you eat in your diet and how they can utilise those for energy. So what kind of bacteria do live in your gut? Well, there's a lot. There are actually ten times more bacteria in your gut than there are cells in your human body. So, But the, one that, the type of one that we work on is um, bacteroides. So there's quite a lot of different species of bacteroides and they can all respond to different and use different sugars. So what's um, important, say, about looking at the responses of these bacteria to sugars then? So they would obviously respond differently to different things in your diet. They can actually monitor the environment of your gut and tell what sugars that you've eaten and turn on the right enzymes to digest and use those sugars. But not everybody has the same bacteria in their gut. So by knowing how the different bacteria work and which bacteria are in your gut, we can predict how they will respond to different things that you eat. So how do you set about actually looking at these bacteria? What do you look into? Okay, so we have uh, the genome sequence of a lot of them. And if you look at the different genes in the bacteria, they're sometimes grouped into collections of genes that are all expressed together and might have a similar function. So sometimes in one of these groups that we call a locus, it has enzymes and also proteins that we think are on the outside of the bacteria and are used for the bacteria, use them for binding proteins and sugars in the environment and bringing them into the cell so it can use them. We identify these proteins from the genome and then we try to make a lot of them and uh, look at what sugars they might bind and then also try and grow crystals of them, take them to diamond and see if we can solve the structure and see if that tells us anything about how they work. So um, how do you actually look into them at Diamond then and what are you able to see about how they work? So using Diamond we can see actually the molecular structure using crystallography, x-ray crystallography. We can see the structure of the protein and uh, we can crystallise them with sugar so we can see exactly where the sugars bind and if the binding of the sugar has any effect on the shape of the protein and what it does when it binds to the protein. How clear is the picture then that you get of this activity? It depends on the protein, but some of the ones that we've got here, we managed to get really high-resolution data for the, for the protein, so we can see at the atomic level exactly where things are binding, exactly what the proteins look like. Now, you mentioned then that you can then know about the different species of these bacteria and know, because different people will have different quantities of each in their stomach, say. So how, can you, how will you go about actually identifying then for, say, personalised nutrition in the future, knowing what bacteria different people have? There are projects at the moment called the Human Microbiome Project, which is they're sequencing like, huge amounts of bacteria in certain people to see what bacteria are there. But obviously that's a very early stage because there are so many billions of bacteria, it takes a long time, and they're developing ways of 
sequencing a lot of things at the same time or just sequencing small amounts, which enables you to identify a whole bacteria from just a small bit of DNA just to speed everything up. But uh, it is a future. It's not a current technology. And having looked into the different proteins and then the binding so far with your work, what have you found so far? Well, we found out about different species of a bacteria called Bacteroides and how they respond to fructans, which is a type of sugar containing fructose. So there are two different types called inulin and levan. And uh, most bacteria can grow very well on inulin, but we found that one of ours, even though it looks very similar and has nearly exactly the same genes, it doesn't actually use inulin at all, but it uses levan. If you look on a broader scale, it looks like it should behave exactly the same, but actually on the molecular level it's really different. And we found out using diamond to look at the structures. So this can then hopefully be applied then in order to enhance the gut bacteria, this particular gut bacteria, in the future? Yeah, that's the plan. <laughs> Could you give an example as to how particular sugars that are known about so far, say, you've met, as you've mentioned, inulin, what, say, uses they've had or how they've been used to potentially increase someone's gut bacteria so far? Inulin is used in a number of uh, yogurts and, and drinks as a prebiotic. So there's probiotics which have other bacteria added into them, but prebiotics often contain sugars which are going to be good for your bacteria and they're known to use well, and inulin is in a number of these. And I imagine, is this useful, say, if somebody's just had a course of, say, antibiotics or something, then in order to reproduce their gut flora? Yeah, yeah. that's the plan. <laughs> what would you say, then, the overall aim is of all of this work? Understanding the gut bacteria is our main aim, because they're such a huge population of gut bacteria and their effects on human health are widespread and we probably don't even understand a fraction of how they work now. It's like a whole other organ. So in terms of understanding how they respond and molecularly how that works, um, it's key to kind of human health. Elizabeth Lowe from the University of Newcastle. And staying on the topic of bacteria, I also met John Marlswright, also based at Newcastle, who works with stressed-out bacteria. So I work on stress-response in bacteria. So this is how bacteria respond to changes in their environment. On a, on a basic level. So the bacteria we work on live in the soil, so they respond to changes in the salt concentration, they respond to changes in the pH of the soil, and they respond to the light levels, so if they get too close to the surface of the soil, they respond to the UV light in the sun. So these bacteria have a, a special sense organ, uh, a protein complex that's inside these bacteria that has sensory modules which respond to different stimuli. So they have modules that respond to different salts, modules that respond to alcohol, strangely, and modules that respond to light. And this particular complex, it then takes these signals and activates a, a cascade, which leads to the expression of over 200 genes. So what type of bacteria is this? are these? So the particular bacteria working is Bacillus subtilis, which is a soil bacteria. But these complexes are found in hundreds of different bacterial species, ones that live in the sea, ones that live in your gut, and other ones that live in really extreme environments, such as the radiation-resistant bacteria. And um, this particular complex you're talking about that responds to stress is called a stressosome. Yes, it's called a stressosome because it's a big protein complex that responds to stress. What do you know so far, then, about how this functions, then, in order for the bacteria to respond to these stresses that you've mentioned, such as light or particular chemicals? So we know this complex consists of a number of different molecules that respond to stress and other molecules that signal the stress. So we know its structure, we know it has these sensory domains and we know it has these signaling domains. That's how these things fit together. How do you set about looking into this? We've used the 
diamond light source to look at the individual components of this, this structure. We've got the X-ray crystal structures. We've also used cryo-electron microscopy, which looks at larger complexes. We've been able to fit the data we've got together to build an atomic model of these complexes. So can you visualize what's going on, or is it more a theoretical idea of what's going on and what it looks like? So what we have is that we have a static view of the molecule in this state before it senses stress. So we have, we have the view of the, the resting complex before stress. And what we want to do is look at, we take the research we've got and look at how it actually changes in response to different stresses. And what have you managed to find out so far then? How does it respond to particular stresses? So what we have so far, this is mostly biochemical evidence, that it responds more like a, a dimmer switch than just an on-off switch. So it responds to different levels of stresses by activating a different level of response. Why do you think it does this? So, and how is this actually all controlled to tame or kind of control these responses? So what we think is happening, because the response is a very, it's a very big response, there's over 200 genes transcribed because of its action. If you've got a small level of stress, you don't want to transcribe huge amounts of all these different genes. But a large level of stress, you want a proportionally larger response. So we think that's why it's, it's tuned like a, a switch. And how crucial is this then, would you say, to the survival of the bacteria? So in the soil bacteria we study, without this complex, they basically can't survive in the wild. In the other bacteria, we can only speculate that it's very important for changes in their lifestyle. So one of the bacteria is uh, anaerobic, but if it experiences oxygen, it really needs to change its lifestyle very quickly. So it has an oxygen sensor on it. And we think this is, this is really key to this, this change. So it's all very clever, really, taking place within these, you know, minuscule bacteria. But knowing this about how they survive in these environments is one thing. But how can this knowledge also be used, say, for particular applications? So if we know how these bacteria can respond to different signals, we might be able to, to change the signal in molecules themselves and elicit very specific signals or change the downstream response to these stresses, say to produce a specific drug or a specific molecule as a, an activating signal. So if you can understand how particular signals are set off, you can use these to then tune in drug production or other kind of applications. So basically you can kind of tune how much of a drug, say, is produced or something like that? Yeah, or we could, say, design a bacteria that responds to an environmental stress and maybe changes colour. So the level of colour change in the bacteria is indicative of exactly how much of this particular molecule is in the environment. What's the kind of current stage or what's the next step with this research? So at the moment we're actually looking at the, the changes in the, the proteins themselves on the introduction of the stress signal. So what molecular differences are between the resting state and the activated state of the protein to really look at how, how it's working. John Miles Wright from the University of Newcastle explaining how it's not just us humans that lead stressful lives, as some bacteria are constantly fighting for their life. So we've heard some of the biological science Diamond had on display, but what about the chemical and physical sciences? One scientist batting for that team was Jenny Rogers from the Centre for Science and Extreme Conditions at the University of Edinburgh, who, as her institution name suggests, does some extreme science. 
Okay, so my main focus is using high pressures and high temperatures to synthesize new materials. So I run a large volume press. It's a massive machine that's about two meters high and weighs about nine tons and can exert a force of about a thousand, a thousand tons. So we can generate pressures of about 100,000 atmospheres, which is equivalent to about six elephants all balanced on top of each other and the bottom elephant wearing a high-heeled shoe and the pressure at the high-heeled shoe point, that is the kind of pressure we can generate with the machine I run. So that's an extremely high pressure, but what, what are the benefits of looking at materials at these pressures or conditions and, and what kind of materials do you look at there? So the exciting thing about using high pressure is we can access materials that we can't access using normal pressure. So we can um, explore just trying to make new, new stuff, basically. So we, we squeeze and heat metal oxides together, and then with the large volume press, we make enough, say, about 10, 20 milligrams that we can recover and then do property measurements on, so electronic measurements, magnetic measurements. And some, one of the groups of materials that we've been working on recently are a group known as superconductors. One of the properties they have is that as you pass a current through them there's zero resistance so basically you don't lose any energy as heat so obviously if you could have a superconductor at room temperature it would be fantastic because you could send currents uh, electrical currents through wires and not have any energy getting lost but the superconductors we've been looking at work at much lower temperatures but they're still really interesting materials not so much as understood about them so it's always important to work on these materials so what kind of materials are these superconductors made of? So the ones that we've been working on are actually made up of a mixture of um, iron and arsenic and, and some other elements in there as well. So they're maybe not so user-friendly, but they are still very exciting. The first one was discovered a couple of years ago by a group in Japan, and since then there's been worldwide excitement, would you believe it, around chemists and, and physicists trying to make these new iron-arsenic superconductors. So I can see it's obviously so beneficial to be able to conduct electricity with minimal energy loss. But as you've mentioned, it is at particular pressures that aren't ambient. And how could it possibly be then adapted to be used? So actually, the, the materials that I'm making with the large volume press, we recover to, to normal pressures. So um, these properties remain at normal pressures. We just use the high pressure to synthesise the materials. So how is this studied at Diamond and like, what can you actually see about the particular superconductors? Sure. So we use Diamond Light Source to give us information about the structure of the materials that we've made. So we can use these ultra high energy x-rays um, and they will bounce off the atoms and tell us uh, information about where the atoms are so we can find out more information about the structure that's related back to the property measurements that we've made back in the lab. We also have people working at the Centre for Science Extreme Condition that's take along what is known as a diamond anvil cell. So that's two diamonds that their points are pointed towards each other. Basically, we squeeze those two diamonds together and generate very high pressure. So they can um, do experiments at Diamond Light Source um, where they look at what's happening to structures of materials under pressure. So they can start to squeeze it and then see the changes that, are, that happen as you squeeze something. So, for example, oxygen has about six different forms. So as you squeeze oxygen... Um, high pressures actually turns into this red crystal, amazing beautiful red crystal. So there's some really cool things that happen at high pressures. And how high a pressure are we talking here? I think oxygen goes to a red crystal at about uh, 170,000 atmospheres, so it's pretty high. So that's quite a wide range of things. So you've got superconductors, you've also got kind of oxygen in its different forms. What other um, possible areas of science could be looked at at these extreme conditions? 
So there are lots of other areas, for example, and there are some groups working in the UK that look at making ultra-hard materials using high pressure. A well-known example of this is diamond itself. So if you squeeze graphite, so if you apply a high enough pressure, so it would be about 50,000 times atmospheric pressure, and then heat it to about 2,000 degrees Celsius, you could transform graphite into diamond. And diamond, obviously, is an incredibly hard material. It's the hardest naturally occurring material. So what we're doing there is we're mimicking the conditions deep within the Earth and um, and, and replicating them here, here, here on Earth. Now, the part of being here at the Royal Society Summer Exhibition, though, is about engaging the public. So you've got a few hands-on demos here to explain a bit about your work. So I'm seeing a, a wine bottle here filled with marshmallows. What's this about? Exactly. So um, marshmallows are basically just made up of sugar and air. And what we're going to do is use a vacuum pump. So this is just used to keep wine good, actually. Um, so we're going to remove the air from, from the wine bottle and see what happens to the marshmallows. that as we take the air out the marshmallows are expanding that's because we're removing the air particles and there's more kind of empty space we're creating a vacuum and there's more space for the remaining air particles and they're increasing in size and now what we're going to do is allow some of the air back in so we're going to increase the pressure again and you heard the air just there go back in and the marshmallows have shrunk quite considerably back down in size and it was very instant so quite a quick demo as well fun demo it's a nice one and you can try it at home but the key to getting the marshmallows in the wine bottle top tip is to use a bit of corn flour otherwise marshmallows will stick to the side of your bottle but it's a good one to try at home what would you summarise as the kind of benefits of looking at things or materials at high extreme conditions? Lots of different benefits depending on the area. One area that, uh, of research is looking at pharmaceuticals under pressure. So as you squeeze something, the atoms rearrange and often have quite different properties. So, for example, uh, Professor Colin Pullum has been looking at uh, paracetamol under pressure and found that the uh, molecules rearrange, the stacking rearranges, and um, the idea would be that that may have slightly different uh, properties, so different absorption properties, so maybe the drug might be absorbed better. So the pharmaceutical industry are, are very interested in high-pressure measurements too. That was Jenny Rogers from the University of Edinburgh. Now that's almost it for this edition of the podcast, but before we go, I also had a chat to members of the public that were visiting Diamond Stand to see what they thought. Uh, I think it's really good and it'll get children really excited about science and with all these like like things that you can get here and the activities around here are really like when you like do this. Whoa, so you're making a magnet levitate there, aren't you? Were you expecting it to do that when you put it on top? Well, yeah, because I, I, they're the same poles and so they, this will make them levitate. Um, what interests you about science? What kind of bits that you find really exciting? Is it the universe? Well, yeah, cosmology and uh, physics and chemistry. To be honest with you, it's so good, yeah. And I just learned many things like this one, that one. Um, so we're here at the diamond stand. So you've just pointed at the fact that the X-ray bit over here has caught your eye. So what, what's particularly interesting about that, or what have you enjoyed? Some good air diagrams. And what have you learned about what they do at diamond? I just learned about how the joints work. And secondly, I just learned, like, what can, what can we use for uh, surgery for joints? And I'm really, really, really surprised uh, because that you, you can uh, look at the investigations at the universities, the, the high, high investigations, but uh, you understand everything. 
here, for example, they, they show, show us that the materials change properties with uh, pressure, hot, uh, temperature, that, and, and how they uh, investigate to make new materials, for example. Um, I knew it existed. In fact, I had seen it from an aeroplane once, and I didn't know what it was. I thought it was a stadium or something, and I looked it up and discovered that it was an accelerator. And so what do you now know about kind of how it works or what's done there? Well, it explained to me the basic thing it does, which is known as an accelerator. It looks like an electron accelerator. And that the accelerator produces X-rays, which here are called light, which is a bit confusing. What's your kind of interest in science usually? Do you tend to come to these types of exhibitions a lot? I trained as a scientist. I work in IT. So it's good just to come back and just see what's going on and see uh, what is interesting out there still. And, and it is amazing, So the exhibitions clearly spark some interest in children as well as adults. Now, that is it for this edition of the Diamond Podcast, brought to you from the Royal Society Summer Exhibition. But do join us again in September, when we'll be investigating the environmental sciences. In the meantime, if you have any questions about Diamond or the research taking place there... The email address is podcast at diamond.ac.uk. You can also listen to previous editions of this programme online at diamond.ac.uk forward slash podcast or nakedscientists.com forward slash diamond. You can also subscribe to the Diamond podcast on iTunes. Now, thank you this month to Peter Cockgreave, Laura Holland, Elizabeth Lowe, John Marlswright and Jenny Rogers. I'm Mira Senthilingam. Thank you for listening and speak to you in September. The Diamond Podcast is brought to you by Diamond Light Source and produced by thenakedscientists.com. There's more information on our website at diamond.ac.uk slash podcast.